0: Good morning, church. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Good. My name's Daniel. I get the joy of preaching this morning. And uh, if you didn't already hear, today is, and if you couldn't tell if you were flipping along in your Bibles reading this morning, today is the last day that we are in Galatians. So I don't know if you're sad about that or happy. I can't tell by your reactions right now. Um. <laughs> Ever since Easter, uh, April 21st, we've been unpacking uh, this book of Galatians. And for me, it's been incredibly freeing and a blessing and encouragement to me studying the gospel and seeing Paul's uh, constant reminder that we never outgrow the gospel. We never move on from it. We move deeper into it. Uh, Because the moment that we move on or we think we can move on from it, uh, we take matters into our own hands through works of the law or through our own obedience, we actually lose the heart of Christianity altogether. That's, what, that's kind of been the focal point of what Paul has, has gotten at in Galatians. And we've seen kind of three parts of this letter. The first part was Paul defending the gospel in the beginning of his letter. He was defending his apostolic authority. And then he worked into defending uh, the gospel that is righteousness and acceptance and love from God is received simply by faith. It's not by our works of the law, our outward uh, religious rites. He demonstrates that through Abraham, and that's kind of the middle section of the letter. And then towards the end of the letter, Paul showed us what the gospel of grace produces in the life of a believer. It leads to great freedom. It leads to godly living. It leads to the fruit of the Spirit. So I pray, uh, just as it's been in my heart, that Galatians has been formational in your understanding of the gospel, in bringing freedom and and godly living uh, to your life, That you can rest in the good news and live and work from the approval of God in Christ and not for it and be enslaved uh, to what you do or what others might think of you. Uh, And as we get into this conclusion, I want you to think with me about uh, your early education days. Maybe elementary school or middle school. And you remember when your English teacher taught you how to write a five-paragraph essay? Alright, what were the five paragraphs? How were those divvied up? You had the first paragraph was the introduction. Mm-hmm. Then you had three paragraphs of body. Yeah. And then you had a final paragraph of conclusion. And I got critiqued on this uh, and, and graded down. But in the conclusion, you actually weren't supposed to introduce new material. You were supposed to kind of summarize what you had written earlier, re-emphasize your main points, kind of resummarize them, and bring everything to a conclusion, Right? You guys trying with me? Yeah. It, it didn't go so well if you got to the conclusion and you would say something like, oh, by the way, those three made points, that was on an illusion. What I really meant was this. And you introduce a secret hidden point in your conclusion. That, that's not how a conclusion works. So when we come to this, this conclusion of Galatians, what Paul is doing is he's kind of tying everything together in the letter. He's re-emphasizing and maybe restating in a different way or very similar way to the main themes that he's repeated all throughout the letter of Galatians, and he's leaving them with what matters most. That's where we're going this morning in Paul's conclusion. So if you, if you haven't yet, and if you have a Bible, uh, open with me to Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to gift you with one, and there's some Bibles on the bar, uh, off to my, this room off to my left. We would love to gift you with one. Um, As you're opening your Bibles, let me also turn your attention to the the handout that you should have received on your way in. On the back of that handout is the sermon title, and you can see this week I got very creative with my sermon title. Final warning and benediction. (laughs) Uh, And then you see the the text that we'll be going over, and there's that list of five questions. And, And if you've been journeying through the book of Galatians with us, you know we've been going over these every week. But if you haven't, Uh, we've been using these five questions to kind of frame our sermons, to guide them. And we've also used these questions to present you with a tool on how to study God's Word. Because as you look through the questions, you'll see what does the text say? What does the text mean? How do we naturally resist it? How is Jesus the hero? And how does his accomplishment, or that reality, motivate our obedience? And the reason that we're framing our sermons, and we want you to think through reading the Bible this way, is because we don't want you to think that the Bible is ultimately about you and what you must be doing. The Bible is about Jesus and what he has done, and we change not by being presented with a new idea and saying, here's what it says, now try harder, but here's Jesus, see his glory and his beauty, gaze at at the gospel, center yourself at the cross, and that is how transformation and obedience happens. Does that make sense? Okay. So, question number one, what does the text say? Verse eleven: See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, if we do some deductive reasoning, we can conclude that up to this point, Paul actually hasn't penned this letter. And for it, uh, you might get all shocked or like, "Well, who wrote this then?" This was actually a common practice in the Greek Roman times. They would write through someone that was called a, a scribe, a secretary, and a manuensis that would dictate, like the, the author of the letter would dictate to the scribe, and they would write down what the person was saying. So that's what we conclude from what's happening like this. Uh, and, and in other letters, Paul says a similar, similar thing to what he says here in Galatians. For example, at the end of Paul's letter to Colossians, he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So That's his little, he's writing this himself. It's a little blessing, a little benediction at the end. Our 2 Thessalonians 3.17 he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of every genuine letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And those are just a couple sentences. But what you see here in Galatians is this is a much larger section of benediction and writing in his own hand. It's, it's almost like there's greater emphasis placed here. It was almost as if Paul took the pen from the secretary's hand and was so passionate and and amped up, he just wanted to write all this out and re-emphasize it himself. And there's a lot of speculations on, well, why was it large handwriting? Was it because, as some people have speculated earlier, that he had bad eyesight? Was it because he was a tent maker by trade and, man, he was working with his hands, he was a little bit rough, he didn't have that professional edge or handwriting technique as a professional scribe? Others have even argued that this was what Paul's way of saying, look how heavily and with passion I have pressed the pen upon writing this. In other words, look at how heavily I'm underlining what I'm saying to you, right? Like when a friend or a spouse writes you a little note or a card and they underline things that are really important, like they don't want you to miss those. That could be Paul's way of doing this. But whatever the reason behind the large letters, what we find in this this larger section is a re-emphasis of what Paul said throughout the letter. Once again, he's contrasting himself with the false teachers, showing the difference, how different the the very natures of their teaching are. He's exposing them for uh, the motivation behind their, their, the true motivation behind their teaching. He's in verses 14 and 17, showing them the true genuineness of his gospel, the, the message that he preached and continues to preach. And in verse fifteen, he repeats a doctrine taught earlier that uncircumcision nor circumcision counts for anything. Outward religious acts and external religious rituals don't matter. What matters is the inward self that has been renewed and transformed by the gospel. That's really what counts. And then he repeats another uh, topic he brought up earlier in verse sixteen. He shows us again that the gospel is not just an initial doctrine to be believed. It is, as he mentioned in Galatians 2.14, a, step, a truth to be kept in step with. The gospel, as he says, is a rule to live by. So let's jump into what he says first in verse 12, exposing those false teachers. Verse 12, he says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Another way of saying this is those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. And the only reason that they're doing this is because they don't want to be persecuted. Those who are trying to be nice to you want you to be circumcised to look good in front of others. So these false teachers, these Judaizers, were really just about self, self self-promotion, self uh, glorification. They were about making themselves look good. They didn't really even love the Galatians. They were using them to bolster their own sense of worth and, and image and identity. The motivation of these false teachers is pride and, and fear. In their pride, they want to look good in front of others, and in their fear, they want to avoid persecution so they don't proclaim the gospel of Christ. And Paul contrasts himself here in verse 14 by saying, but far be it from me, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So you see the compare and the contrast that he's doing with the false teachers. False teachers, they want to they look good in front of others. They want to boast in the flesh. They want to avoid persecution by not proclaiming the cross of Christ. I'm boasting only in the cross of Christ. I've been crucified to the world. It's, it's Paul's way of saying, God forbid I boast in anyone or anything except in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Paul's saying what he has re- mentioned earlier at the beginning of the letter, I don't care about the approval of others. If I cared about the approval of others, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. It's Paul's way of reemphasizing what he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live because I don't care about the applause and the recognition of the world because the world has been crucified to me and I've been crucified to the world. Paul has been crucified with Christ, so anyone or anything outside of Christ does not define his identity, does not control him. He's not working for a sense of worth from those things. It is only by Christ. And why does he not boast in these external religious practices? Why does he not make much of these outward rituals? Because they don't count. They don't really matter. So he says, verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What matters most is whether we have been transformed into a new creation or not. This is the result of the new birth, whereby the Holy Spirit is received upon hearing the gospel by faith. This is what matters. The the internal workings of the heart, not the external outworkings of religious acts or rituals. Then Paul says in verse 16, For all who walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Again, re-emphasizing the fact that you don't just become a new creation and then be perfected by the flesh or religious acts. You become a new creation and you walk by this, this faith, this trusting in the spirit, this treasuring in the gospel. And then he gets personal. He shares some of his heart again, his, his pastoral side. From now on, from now, let no one cause me trouble. It's almost Paul's way of saying, that's it. I've said it. Please don't bother me with this anymore. I've poured my heart out to you. I've, I've laid everything out on the line. This should be the end of it. It's Paul's way of saying, since I've written and after you've received this letter, don't make me justify my authority again. Don't make me defend the true nature of the gospel again. Don't make me show from the scriptures that salvation and righteousness is by faith. Because on my very body I bear the marks, the very marks of Christ. The scars, the the evidence of me trying to lay everything out on the line for this gospel. I've been persecuted, I've been beaten, I bear scars and marks on my own body, I've demonstrated how much I believe and have centered my life in this by how I've suffered for it. So let's, let's put this matter to bed. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. And then he ends a letter sim- similar to how he started it by talking about grace. He ends with a prayer. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. We know the Galatians were tempted to fall away from grace. They were being deceived that it was up to them that they had to be made right with God. It wasn't the cross alone. The cross wasn't sufficient. God's grace wasn't sufficient. They had to do something. And and Paul warned them, when you take matters into your own hands like this, when you boast about what you've done or think it's about that you have to earn your right standing with God, you actually fall away from grace. You miss it. You don't understand it. One commentator summed up verse 18 like this. It is though Paul were saying to the Galatians, Dear brothers, in writing to you in this way, I have put it all on the line. Now you know exactly the burden of my heart, and I will end the letter as I began it. Commending to you the awesome and marvelous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only thing left for me to do is pray from my heart that Christ will confirm my labors among you, restoring you to the truth of the gospel and granting you the gift of perseverance unto life, everlasting so may it be amen and that's how he concludes the letter grace be with you you're tempted to forget this and i'm praying god make it real to our hearts he's tying this all together and ending with a call of prayer that they would experience grace so now that we've walked through the text and see what it says let's look at what it might mean that question two in your handout In light of what the text says, what are some timeless principles from the text and how we can apply them to our lives today. And and I want to highlight three principles as I was trying to make sense of this passage. Three things that have been impressed upon me as I was studying. Three things that Paul is using to contrast himself and the false teachers. Number one is the exaltation of a Christian. Exaltation is another way of saying boasting. I just used the the letter exaltation because it starts with E. And sometimes preachers are a little bit paranoid about... uh, I don't know what that means, the alliteration. Not the right word. Everything starts with E. Anyways, the exaltation of a Christian, the evidence of a Christian, and the essence of a Christian. So, the exaltation of a Christian, the essence of a Christian, and the evidence of a Christian. Number one, the exaltation of a Christian. The word exalt is another word that Paul uses in this passage that means to boast. To boast means to uh, display or Proclaim publicly a satisfied contentment with one own or another's achievements. It can mean to rejoice in, to glory in, to triumph. Boasting uh, in, in Paul's time was, was used in military context. It was used as, as a boast would be like when a king or a military leader or a warrior would try to instill courage and rally the troops to fight, maybe to face certain death, so say something like, you know, you see the, the, the military movies and uh, whether it's Lord of the Rings or King Arthur or, I don't know, those, mili- those military movies where the, there's a guy on a horse and he's got a, a sword or a spear and he's having some sort of inspiring words like, let's do this. Okay, that'd be a boast. We've got it. We can do this. Uh, outside of military settings, though, boasting was very common and actually highly valued in the greco-roman times so people would boast about their manliness and it was kind of disgusting i was i was reading and in, in, in one of the commentaries a historian was talking about uh there was one particular guy who would take his son down to the public baths, and you mean public baths, you get naked and the father would boast about his son's good looks to everyone there and that was something that was just highly valued so, people would boast about their good looks. They would take pride in their military victories, in how well they could crush someone in a debate, or if they were a good speaker, or if they were smarter than others, or they were on a higher social class than others. They would boast. And this was something that was valued. These were all things to be proud of. And as you think about this, and then you look at our culture, they're actually not that much different, are they? When you look at what we value or our society values, people boast about their good looks, right? Good Instagram and Facebook and the whole selfie movement. People boast in how smart they are. People take pride in their body image or their accomplishments, how much they've done climbing up the corporate ladder. We want to proclaim and spread the contentment and satisfaction with our achievements. In fact, the, the modern self uh, Self-esteem movement, right? This is all about boasting, isn't it? Just kind of for kicks and giggles, I I Googled uh, self-esteem quotes into Google. I just wanted to read the top three. Number one, life becomes simpler and lighter. When you love yourself more than things, things simply become lighter and easier. So what's the boast? Love yourself. Number two, You'll have more inner stability and self-sabotage less when your opinion of yourself goes up. Then you'll stop trying to get so much validation and attention from other people. Self, right? Uh Number three, this is my favorite one. You'll be happier. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure we have, maybe we have friends on social media, or we are that friend who... Like our our page and our timeline is just highlighted full of these bogus gospels that are really just, you have what it takes within yourself, just look in there and then highlight that and think about it and be mindful of it. This is boasting. Boasting is you're trying to instill confidence, you're trying to validate yourself, you're trying to strengthen yourself, you're trying to put your identity in something and when you boast... Uh, It's it's ultimately what you take pride in and and it's what you place your confidence in when push comes to shove. What do you turn to in times of trial and times of need? Boasting is all about identity. And, And when Paul says, I will not boast in the flesh, he's saying I will not boast in outward accomplishments of others or how great I am. I will boast in nothing else except Christ crucified. My whole identity, my value, my sense of worth, what centers me, what I take pride and confidence in is the cross. That's what Paul's saying. And that's the boasting. That's to be the boasting of a Christian. We're not awesome. We don't have what it takes within ourselves. We need Christ and we boast in our need for Christ on the cross and what he has done for us on the cross. That's our boast. That's our goal. The rejoicing in the bedrock of a Christian's hope is found in the cross. We sing about the cross, we come back to the cross, we pray and and look to the cross. The cross is our hope. The cross defines our identity. And what the Apostle Paul shows us here in this passage is that what we boast in is really at the center of our hearts and belief. So I would encourage you, reflect on your heart. What do you most readily and quickly and easily boast about? Put your confidence in. Want to show off. Put your hope in. When you're stressed and worried, what do you turn to? I think Paul would say that's really at the center of your heart. The exaltation of a Christian is boasting in the cross. Second principle Paul shows us is the essence of a Christian. Paul writes in verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation Now if you've been journeying with us through Galatians for the past few weeks you may recognize or this phrase might sound familiar to you And that's because it's it's almost identical to a phrase mentioned earlier in chapter 5 verse 6 Give your bible one a flip there Paul says For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So these verses are parallel, and they they help us understand what Paul is getting at here. It's Paul's way of saying, focusing externally doesn't do anything. The true, genuine nature of a person's faith is not seen in religious duties or rituals, but from a transformed life a life that is a new creation that comes from the inward work of the Holy Spirit that's a supernatural act of God's grace. A new creation that happens from believing and receiving Christ crucified, from placing your faith in him, and from this faith, this belief in God's love and acceptance you have through Christ, it works inside out. So the love that you've received, the faith that you have in Christ, that, that overflows in working itself out. Through love. So a love that cherishes Christ and boasts of him is a love that also loves brothers and sisters in Christ. Or this is what Will talked about in that chapter in chapter 5. The transformed life looks like a life given in service to others. It's inward. It comes from the inside out. We receive the love of Christ and that flows its way out. This love looks like bearing the burdens of others as we looked at last week. Looks like seeking the good of others, especially those who are the family of God. It looks like a love that serves and seeks the best interests of others. Paul's saying here that circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't really matter, because you can observe circumcision and food laws and adhere to strict codes. But unless you receive and believe in Christ, you're not made new. And that's what really matters. At the heart of a Christian is not a person who believes in God. James says even demons believe in God. The essence of a Christian is someone who has been made new. A person who is renewed and who lives by this rule and this standard and this principle. We continually want to be made new. Friends, we know we can clean up the outside. We can put on a show. We can familiar ourselves with Christianity and churchianity. But are we being renewed by God's Spirit? Have we been made new? All that matters is being transformed into a new creation and continually being made new by the Spirit. So, the exaltation of a Christian, the essence of a Christian, finally, the evidence of a Christian. Paul says in verse 17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul is communicating here in this verse that just as slaves bore the branding and the marks of their master, their owner, Paul's branding, his marks of suffering, the scars that he received during his missionary journeys and for proclaiming the gospel, for being beaten and and faced persecution and suffering, these marks and these scars identified him as a true Christian. Suffering is, in a sense, the Christian uniform. And suffering for the sake of the gospel is the evidence of being a Christian. Now here I'm not talking about kind of general, common suffering that we experience simply because we live in a fallen and broken creation. I know I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard, the Christian who says, yeah, I got a little head cold this week. This is my cross to bear. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about suffering and persecution that he has experienced simply because he's laid his life on the line for the sake of the gospel. What is the goal of your life? This is what really it caused me to think about. What's the goal of our life? What's at the center of our life? Is it self promotion, self preservation, and comfort? Because we won't put our lives on the line. We won't lay everything out for the sake of the gospel. But is it for the advancement and the display and proclamation of the, of the cross? And, and this is a truth and principle that's seen all throughout God's word, and, and it comes multiple times from the very mouth of Jesus. If you faithfully follow Jesus, you will experience persecution. Therefore, if we're not experiencing some level of persecution... Now, it might not mean we're getting whipped and mocked and put in the stocks, but if we're not experiencing financial or relational or like it's sacrificing on our hobbies or on our comforts or on what we think we need, we have to take a good look at our hearts. Is the gospel at the center? Is the cross our true boast? Are we willing and inviting suffering and persecution because we are so passionate and centered and focused on the cross. For Paul, proclaiming the cross brought persecution, and it was really offensive, both to the Jews and to Greeks. For the Greeks, it was foolishness. For the Romans, it was foolishness. It was foolishness because dying on a cross was so shameful and horrible that you didn't want to even be associated with anyone who died like that. In, in fact, the Latin word crux, where we get crucifixion and cross, was such a crude expression that Romans wouldn't say it in public, if you're polite and decent. Historians claim that to avoid saying the word for the cross, the Romans created a euphemism or a saying that would say, he was hung on an unlucky tree. That's how culturally shameful and disgusting and worthless the brutal execution device of a wooden cross was. Now, we might have lost, we kind of have lost this sense of shame and offense, I think, at the the actual cross. We wear wear crosses on our neck and get tattoos of crosses. It's almost, it'd be similar to like having a necklace of an electric chair or a tattoo of a noose. But the cross is still offensive today, isn't it? Right, for, for our culture and maybe for a, a more uh, liberal or relative worldview, the cross is offensive because it says the cross is the only way. There's no other way. Other religions are wrong. It's the cross. That's offensive. I've heard this. You mean to say that the cross is the only way? What about all those other religions out there? There's all just different ways to God. No, there's the cross that might seem intolerant and, and narrow. It's offensive. The cross, though, is also, was also very offensive to the Jews and, and similarly to the more conservative, moralistic, religious mind because the cross says it doesn't matter how good you think you are and how much better you think you are than others. You are in the same condition as the criminal doesn't matter how much you clean yourself up, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you are the same state as the person in the lowly condition. The Jews were so offended that they could not overget the fact that all their rituals and their ceremonial laws added nothing to their right standing with God. The gospel is offensive because the cross shows us that we are so weak, so crooked, so sinful that we don't have what it takes in ourself and there's nothing we can do to alleviate our situation. We are completely and, and totally reliant upon the cross. The cross confronts us with our own selfishness and all the ways we try to seek self-salvation. The British theologian John Stott says it like this. Indeed, it is natural to fallen man To decline from the real, the inward, and the spiritual to fabricate a substitute religion which is easy and comfortable because its demands are external and ceremonial only. This is, I think, when we look into that question three, how we naturally resist this. (coughs) We stay external and outward instead of focusing on the internal and the supernatural because it's more comfortable and more easy to deal externally than to get at matters of the heart. And and this shows us in how many religions and and why, how many religions man has really made for himself. Religions that were created and and followed out of pride or fear. They're getting at that sense that we have. And and the false teachers in Galatia, we saw this already, were motivated out of pride and fear. And maybe they were promoting the Galatians to do the same. They, They weren't really sure if they had right standing with God, so they had to do a couple things to kind of shore up their right standing with the cross. The cross wasn't really enough. They had to be circumcised. They had to obey these strict food laws. And and when you look at the church today, you'll see that although we might not be faced with the same temptations as observing food laws or being circumcised, at least I haven't come across that in my experience, there are a plethora of false teachers and teachings that insist you actually have to do something to be made right with God. Such teachings like you have to be baptized to be saved. You have to speak in tongues to be saved. You have to use a certain Bible translation to be saved. Mm -hmm. You have to call God a certain name to be saved. Mm -hmm. You have to embark on a two-year missionary journey to be saved. Mm -hmm. You have to make trips to a sacred city to be saved. You have to pray to God as mother to be saved. It's a recent one. A couple ladies came to my door and told me that did I know about God the mother I did not so they informed me <laughs> <laughs> and we are bombarded by this from the outside but in our natural sense there is something in our pride and out of our fear that we want to take credit for something about our salvation and our right standing and it's just easier to do that Outwardly. We take pride in ourselves and in our work so that we can boast about it and feel better about ourselves and feel superior to others. We live in fear because we think that if God is really going to love us and accept us, certainly we have to do something. We resist the gospel of grace. When we're honest with ourselves and we really take time to reflect upon our hearts I think we find this. I see this in my own heart. We're prone to wander and turn from the cross and turn back to our flesh, back to our accomplishments, back to our pride. We're prone to fall to a kind of dry, dull, dead Christianity that's just based on outward acts and putting up a show, but there's no vibrancy, there's no intimacy and and love and joy in Christ. We don't suffer for the gospel because we don't think it's worthy enough. We are deceived that other things are better and more comforting and more satisfying. But praise God that he has not left us in our natural state. Praise God that while we were boasting in our flesh and trying to make ourselves right with God, but all of our righteousness and our acts were like filthy rags to him, Jesus came sent by the Father to live the life that we could never live, right? Jesus is the hero, isn't he? Yes. Jesus is the one who, who makes all of this possible through his accomplishment. Even though we were living enslaved for the approval and opinions of others, God sent Jesus to make us new creations. Not because of anything that we've done. Praise God that if we are a Christian, we have been set apart before we were born, called to God by his grace, that God was pleased to reveal his son to us, that we should boast and make much of the cross. Jesus makes it possible and secures the accomplishment of making us new creation because Jesus lived that perfect life and that life in full service to God and others while we were living self-centered lives. Jesus came to die in our place as sinners. While we were using others to boast our own self of sense worth, Jesus was used by others to give us his worth. Jesus on the cross shows us how wicked and desperately needy we are as humans, yet he shows us how loved and accepted we are. So when we look to the cross, we are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than we ever thought yet we are simultaneously more loved and accepted than we could ever imagine. Nothing does that like the cross. Nothing has grace on you like Jesus does. I think if we really come to understand and grapple with this message of the cross, there's really just two outcomes that we have. The more we hear it, the more we'll hate it. It faces, it hits our pride and it slaps us in the face and we will just start to turn ourselves off of the gospel. Or we will become more and more changed by it. There's an old Puritan saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So I pray that by God's grace as we continue to set ourselves before the gospel that we are like wax and not clay. Amen? That our hearts are just softened by his grace. Yes, by the offense, but also by the comfort of the cross. That we begin to boast in the cross because there's nothing better than it. I think if you don't really think that you're that bad, you won't really be changed by the gospel of grace. You won't really think you need it. However, if by God's grace you've been given eyes to see and ears to hear, The message of the cross will simultaneously cut you down and build you up. It will humble you as you set yourself before the cross and it will lift you up as you realize all that Jesus has done on on your behalf because he loves you. I pray that as we have studied through Galatians as we look at this last passage that we will say, like Paul, I don't want to boast in anything else other than the cross. I'm not going to boast in how awesome and great I am. I'm not going to boast in how awesome and great other people are. I'm going to boast in Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray in light of Galatians, what we've learned, we can say and really mean, I contributed nothing to my right standing and righteousness before God. My acceptance with God is not conditional upon my work. It's been given by grace, received by faith, and I am loved and accepted by God, and it's all because of the cross. It's all because of Christ. Does your heart really believe that? If it doesn't, you're going to be enslaved by how well you think you perform, your own feelings of how well you feel like you're a good Christian, other people's opinions of you, you will be enslaved. But if you continue to set your heart before the gospel and be mindful of grace, you'll you'll be changed. You'll experience freedom and such a freedom that you won't want to go back to other things. Friends, let's kill the deceitfulness and deadliness of the pride in our lives, the boasting in our flesh, and let's examine our boasting and what we're willing to suffer for. Let's examine the heart of our faith and take this as an opportunity to confess our need for Christ and proclaim his greatness and his goodness, that he's better. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.